On May 15th, Rolling Stone's iconic frontman Mick Jagger posted a video to Twitter that served as a welcome relief to fans who had been concerned back in March when Jagger and the Stones had to cancel tour dates so he could have heart surgery. In the video, the septuagenarian slides, hops, and bounces across a dance studio's hardwood, signaling all was right with Jagger's heart and rhythm. The message was clear. I'm Mick Jagger. I'm still going strong. The Rolling Stones are still going strong. Almost 60 years after forming, arguably the greatest band in rock history was once again alive and kicking. It was as if Jagger, at 75, was once again just beginning. Of course, he's done that many times, starting back in the 1960s when he began the Rolling Stones along with Keith Richards. They set out on a furious and fierce road to not just be a band, but to be the band, the greatest rock and roll band ever. In the same decade that the Rolling Stones changed everything about music, there was a project going on in the U.S. with the same fury, intensity, and speed with which the artist creates. And its contribution to the 20th century would prove even more seismic and far-reaching than what any band could do. It was the U.S. space program. From its official beginning in 1958 to Apollo 11 in 1969, it took NASA only 11 years to transform the concept of manned spaceflight into Neil Armstrong walking on the moon on national television. NASA engineers, physicists, pilots, and astronauts worked around the clock to finally see Eagle, the lunar module, touch down on the moon's surface and the crew of Armstrong, Michael Collins, and Buzz Aldrin return triumphantly to Earth's waters in the summer of that year. Key in that effort were nearly 30 NC State alumni. We tell some of their stories in the spring issue of NC State Magazine, which is now out, to celebrate this summer's 50-year anniversary of Apollo 11. Our alums' jobs varied. The Wolfpack's moon men ran landing profiles, testing trajectories astronauts could use in landing the eagle on the big bright rock. One set in mission control during the historic mission. One alum's name even shows up on Apollo 11's flight plan as one of its three authors. Jim Prim is one of those alumni featured in the article. He's now 80 and lives in Southern Pines, North Carolina. He trained astronauts during Project Mercury and worked on the Gemini and Apollo programs. In fact, I was, I was the crew integration engineer for the, for the lunar module. I'm Chris Saunders, associate editor of NC State Magazine. And today on Hear the How, Jim Prim takes us through his life at NASA and back to Apollo 11. He shares stories of astronauts, talks about his work on the lunar module, and even tells us about the time he was not an astronaut, but he played one on TV. Episode 11, Just the Beginning. Jim Prim graduated from NC State in the summer of 1960 with a degree in mechanical engineering with an aeronautical option. By that October, he had been enticed by what a NASA employee at Langley had shown him on a visit. He showed me the... Uh... Mercury procedures trainer and, and asked me would I like to do it. I said, sure. It sounded like fun. And uh, it had an analog computer sitting off to the side and, and a contractor just to maintain that one computer. And it was huge with, you know, tubes and everything else in it. The ironic thing about that? The technology then, all computer capability within the total NASA was less than what you get in, in almost a watch. 
So there was Prim working on Project Mercury, trying to get a manned spacecraft to orbit the Earth. And as an engineer, he focused on failures. What, what you would normally do is decide, you know, what kind of failure am I going to introduce to this mission? Prim could simulate launch and would introduce failures into that gigantic analog computer and see how astronauts would respond to the problem in the Mercury Procedures Trainer. During these tests, sometimes members of the Mercury 7, the first U.S. astronaut selected to go into space, got it right. And, Prim says, sometimes they didn't. Al Shepard was in for training, and uh, I, I programmed a failure, and he did something, and I said, Al, you just bought the farm. He says, I did not. And he, he got mad at me, and he stormed out. And I let him. Uh, he came back a little bit and he says, Jim, I'm sorry. You were right. His work even made him a TV star, albeit brief. NBC went to NASA and said, we want to do a, a story about NASA. You know, can we have one of the astronauts, you know, in the, in the story? And they said, no. So I am the astronaut in their story that uh, I, I have never seen the program. His work with Mercury not only led him to that television appearance, but also to work on the Gemini program in the mid-1960s as a crew station project engineer. And it was during Prim's Gemini days that he got to fly in zero gravity in a KC-135, otherwise known as a Boeing 707. In fact... Uh, I got more zero-gravity time flying zero-gravity in one day down at the Cape than Al Shepard got in his entire Mercury time actually going into space. We did 118 parabolas. Next up for Prim was the Apollo program. He was a crew integration engineer for the lunar module at the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston. Today, it's the Johnson Space Center. He had a particular insight into stowing things, life support systems, spacesuits, and packs. His knowledge helped solve a weight problem engineers were running into on Apollo. The module was too heavy, so Prim proposed moving one of the life support systems that weighed about 150 pounds off the wall and onto the floor. He then offered a solution if the system hindered the door from opening inward. Problem solved. And on July 20th of 1969, he watched as many did on television, four days after liftoff, as Eagle, the lunar module whose problem he helped troubleshoot, touched down on the moon. He says the engineer in him knew they had prepared for everything and that the flight, the landing, and even the splashdown back in the Pacific Ocean on July 24th would all end perfectly. I've always assumed it was going to go the way it was scheduled. Prim clearly is proud of his time at NASA. He has a handful of photos of him interacting with the likes of John Glenn. He even has an autographed photo of the Friendship 7 launch, which was the Mercury mission wherein Glenn became the first American to orbit the Earth. He talks glowingly of the astronauts. Turns out Armstrong lived two houses down from him. One time he even came by and gave Prim's daughter an astronaut doll. 
and even something to Prim. Neil Armstrong, when he came back from his around-the-world tour, uh, brought me and gave me three Mersham pipes. I had to smoke them. Endings are tricky things to pull off in songs and stories. Ask the writers of Game of Thrones, which just ended. They are so tough to pull off because we resist wanting them. It's while Paul McCartney is currently on tour, playing the songs of the Beatles, who have just as good an argument as the greatest band ever, as do the Rolling Stones. He was just in Raleigh, in fact. The reviewer in the News and Observer wrote that he played 38 songs, 2 hours and 45 minutes, nearly never ending. And it's the reason why the video of Mick Jagger dancing in studio had 54,000 retweets and 286,000 likes. It was so successful because it was anything but an ending. It was the total opposite. It was his pronouncement that Jagger and the Stones were back. A beginning. We don't want it to end. We just love beginnings more than endings. Jim Prim feels that way. Just hear how he frames the Apollo 11 moon landing, an event that happened five decades ago, immortalized in pictures, audio, movies, history books. I ask him to reflect on its legacy, thinking he would look back. But instead... Well, it's just the beginning. There's so much more that we need to find out. Thank you for listening to Hear the Howl today. Special thanks to Jim Prim for sharing his stories of his life at NASA with me. The early days of the space program were indeed a beginning for him as he would go on to work on Skylab as well. Morgan Holcomb produced this episode, as she always does. We talk a great deal about Apollo 11 and Neil Armstrong, but Michael Collins and Buzz Aldrin were also integral parts of that mission. And we can't forget them as we revisit Apollo 11 this summer. Same goes for Morgan and the work that she does on Hear the How. And same goes for Sylvia Adcock, my managing editor. She reads and edits these and takes time to give me her thoughts on what works and what doesn't. In an earlier version of this, I had more on the Stones and Beatles rivalry. She made me see it didn't work. Prim's stories, along with the story of six other NC State alumni who left some imprint, no matter how small, on the Apollo program and on that famous mission five decades ago, appear in the spring issue. If you've seen the cover of the current issue of NC State Magazine, you know it features Buzz Aldrin staring at the American flag on the moon. If you haven't seen it, I invite you to head to alumni.ncsu.edu and join the Alumni Association to start receiving our quarterly publication. We like it. We think you would, too. We don't end today's episode with Van Morrison's Moon Dance or Frank Sinatra's Fly Me to the Moon. We're not even going to end with an ending. Instead, just a beginning. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5. All three engines up and burning. 2, 1, 0, and liftoff. Join us next time on Hear the Howl.